Welcome to the Art Life Faith Podcast, and I'm your host, Roger Lowther. Now, many of you have been writing me about this earthquake that hit Japan just a couple of weeks ago on January 1st. Wow, what a, what a way to begin the new year, right? And as you know, it was a pretty big one. In Tokyo, it wasn't that big. I mean, it was definitely felt, but it was more like just kind of big swaying. But actually, I wasn't in Tokyo at the time when the earthquake hit. I was in Nagano, not far from the epicenter of the earthquake. We were up in the mountains of Japan on a skiing trip with the family. And let me tell you, where we were, it was big. It was definitely strong, and it brought back memories of 2011. I mean, in fact, the ground was shaking and jolting so hard that it was really was impossible to walk. We were staying in a cabin with foundations that were nothing more than a, a bunch of stones piled on top of each other. Not a very solid foundation at all, so we were really worried that the whole thing was just going to topple over and collapse onto the ground. And it's built into the side of this cliff. So there was this worry that it was just going to slide down the mountain in a landslide like exactly is what happened in many places in Ishikawa. So fortunately, neither of those things happened, but the aftershocks, they just kept hitting, you know, one after the other and not little ones either. So we took shelter outside for a little while and built a snowman. So the aftershocks, at first they were like every 15 minutes or so, and then about every 30 minutes, then like every 45 minutes, then every hour. And by the end of those first few days, we had, I don't know, like 30 earthquakes, maybe more, a lot of earthquakes. I wasn't keeping count, but they were definitely felt and memorable. Inside the cabin, we had this big kerosene heater to keep the cabin warm, but it also dries out the air. So on top of it, we had this huge pot of water. And let me tell you, that didn't fare so well in the earthquake. I mean, all of that water was just swishing around and just went over the side and down into the floor. And so we we had a very wet floor for a couple days there. And of course, Everything else in the cabin fell down as well. It was a, there was quite a mess <laughs> that we had to clean up, but there really wasn't any damage where I was. But of course, as you know, it's a much different story in Ishikawa. And you've probably seen the news reports. A lot of homes fell down. A lot of roads are impassable. Through the church network, we heard about the needs in the area, and my friends in Nagoya, Japan, were able to take a large van full of supplies right after the earthquake. And then my friends from Chiba did that as well. Well, I haven't been there yet, but we are in conversation with contacts about what the needs are and what to do. They're telling us not to come right now because there's this bottleneck of supplies at the base of the peninsula. And they're simply not able to get the supplies where they need to go because of damage to the roads. And they're so narrow going through the mountains there. But the current plan is that to take a team next month with artists to give concerts and shelters. So I'll definitely keep you posted about that. Well, today I'm excited to introduce you to Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. She's a phenomenal person and a phenomenal writer here in Tokyo and good friends of our family, along with her husband and son, who's in the same class as my son. 
We recorded this podcast just before an Art Life Faith event that was being held that evening on writing in Japan, along with another author as well. Anyway, without further ado, here is Sarah Henlicky Wilson. Hey, Sarah, I am so thankful to have you on the show today. I am delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, so tonight you're going to be sharing with a group of people in our living room here about writing. Over the past, we've had musicians come, we've had painters, dancers, filmmakers, but it's been a while since we had a writer come, so I'm really looking forward to this. Cool. I'm excited to be a part of it. And I'm just excited to talk about writing because that's, I mean, wow, filmmakers and dancers, that blows my mind. I feel like writing is the easy thing because all you have to do is type. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It's like, a, it's a it's a tough process, that's for sure. And it feels like it's never done. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So this morning, I finished your book of short stories called Pearly Gates. And I found it to be a really moving collection of stories. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. It's a strange little collection, honestly, of 30 very short stories. And the premise is that each one features a person, a human being, uh, never named, man or woman, uh, usually adults, sometimes children, sometimes more than one person or even a crowd. And they come to the pearly gates of heaven. We most often hear about pearly gates in connection with uh, either jokes or New Yorker cartoons featuring St. Peter. Uh, standing guard, but the imagery is drawn from the book of Revelation. So there's a lot of Revelation imagery scattered throughout this book. And the idea is basically when you get to the, the pearly gates, you are at the final zone of no BS, no more lying or pretending. There is something mm-hmm. um, about that that place that repels anything but truthfulness. And so it's a story of how a bunch of different people for in a bunch of different ways and for their own different reasons, either pass through the gates, some happily, um, some pass through even unhappily, but they still pass through. And there are others who do not like what they find there and turn and walk around the other way. Yeah, I really appreciate the vivid imagery of these stories. I mean, I could easily imagine myself right there listening to the story, even animating it in my head, like visually. And um just so many different things kind of connected to life on earth here, Mm. right? I mean, the truth is, even though this is quote unquote afterlife fiction, I mean, it really is about our life now, like all spiritual speculation about the life to come. Uh It's reflecting back to us where we are now. But the nice thing about the pearly gates is you can't lie anymore. (laughs) You're confronted with truth in a way that we can always kind of dodge it in this life. Right. Like there's a sense, I think a lot of people think of heaven in this kind of abstract manner that it's, uh, you know, it's a place where God is, but it's somewhere other. It's not mm. like here at all, but there's a an earthiness to the way mm. that you've written these stories. Yeah, well, you know, as I wrote more and more, I realized that to make them actually like meaningful, something you can connect to, they had to be anchored in in vivid reality because I mean they're very short and there are no names I'm not developing a plot so it has to happen right then and what came to me is that we believe in the resurrection of the body and so a great deal Mm. of actually the emotional and spiritual drama is bodily enacted um, through the people's own bodies what happens to them what they do with them how they interact with objects that they might bring there with them so that that I'm glad you that spoke to you that concreteness because it was really meant to be a, a testimony to the resurrection of the 
body and yeah. centrality uh, to spirituality. Well, I could really feel that the heaviness or the lightness of the burdens. Uh, I remember especially there was that one scene where the woman is scratching her skin mm. uh, and then she's like, oh, I'm so clean now. And you can yeah. feel that cleanness. You can feel the physicality <laughs> of yeah. this encounter they're having with heaven. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites is when um, the, the man is furious at finding out that the Lord is the Lord. He had spent his whole life dedicated to uh, denouncing the name of the Lord. And finally, in rage, he just attacks him and plunges through his heart I, and I pops that. out on the other side, <laughs> covered in, in the blood of Jesus. Uh, but the blood is what brought him in. Like, it brings everybody in. And But the right. experience, even at that final moment of going through the blood of Jesus, is what changes him as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're not all quite that gory. That's that's an exception. <laughs> no, I just it was I could almost I could imagine this being an animated series of these stories because they were just so like visual and um, and they're so for you listening, I recommend these. There's perfect bedtime reading because like mm -hmm. it's a maybe two pages or six pages for a story. It's easy to kind of pick up and read one or a lot of them in one sitting. Yeah, great. Oh, I'm just thrilled to hear this. I, I've gotten probably more, you know, meaningful feedback from people for this book than anything else I've written. It seems to have, which is funny because it started out as a bizarre experiment. I would not have expected this to touch as many people as it has. Yeah, I was inspired. So let me move on to another book that you've written. One, uh, A Tumbling Down, is one that I read six months ago. And I have trouble ever forgetting that book because it was it hit me so strongly because of the things that i was going through in my mm. own life um how would you introduce this book to a listening audience right well less inspirational than pearly gates <laughs> this one is yeah. is much more anchored on earth so a tumbling down is a novel about a lutheran pastor's family in upstate new york in the late 1980s uh, i grew up in a lutheran pastor's family in upstate state new york in the late 1980s but other than that uh, it's drawn from our experience and location but it's not our, our family story it's not autobiographical in that respect but uh basically that's um, uh, parents in their late 30s trying to struggle on with um, career and vocation. They have a oldest daughter getting close to adolescence, two little boys born within a year of each other who are very close, kind of all the usual growing up, growing older challenges, um, a lot of time developing what the life of a congregation feels like. I have never read a, a book that really I, I felt satisfied me either on what it's really like to be a pastor in a church mm -hmm. with a family or what it's like to be in a congregation. So that's one thing I wanted to capture. But that by itself was a little bit too um, too vaguely literary for me. I wanted some action. And so um, about a quarter of the way into the book, a really horrific tragedy befalls the family. And mm -hmm. um, so the rest of the book is about the aftermath of the tragedy and then unfortunately how it leads to a faction in the congregation turning on the pastor's family exploiting the tragedy trying to drive him out and then the aftermath of that yeah i um again so it impacted me so deeply because it's so reflected what we were going through in our own church mm -hmm. with a, a family tragedy and the pastor and then kind of division in the church afterwards and I mean, it's like this. Is this a true? Like, I kept. I asked you, is this a true story? It's like, well, I made it up, but it's the most like true fiction story I have ever read. I, I swear. 
Like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm related to tons of pastors. I have a ton of pastors' friends. I am a pastor myself, fortunately, in a very happy congregation now. Not like this at all. But, I mean, yeah. I have just seen... Well, here, this is another thing that may be a little slight polemical subtext here, but um, in popular American depictions of pastors and pastors' families, you either have the totally sanitized, happy, unchallenged, you know, just Lord is good and life is good and everything's fine and isn't it all sweet and all wrapped up. Or you have really the pastor is a villain and he's having an affair and he's embezzling money and he's lost his faith and, you know, it's all dark and horrible. Right. And just neither of those felt true to life to me from I'm they exist those, those things well the second thing happens I'm not sure about the first but um but one thing I had never really seen depicted either uh, besides just really what it feels like to be in a congregation is the, a congregation a congregational faction turning on a pastor mm-hmm. like in, in news reports too it's always the pastor's fault and I don't doubt there are lots of times it's the pastor's fault but it's not only the pastor's fault and I just I, I that story needed to be told about what it's like for these for, and it can be a very small number of people who just decide to take down the pastor and then how do you how do you live with that? Yeah, a very vocal minority. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the way that um, well-meaning, nice church folks are unequipped to deal with that, and they can get sucked into the system without even realizing it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, because it was such a painful book for me to read. I'm like, should I recommend this book to others or not? Because, oh, it was so painful. But it was so true and so helpful. I, I do recommend it to as many people as I can because it it was just, there was wisdom in there that I think we all need to hear through the pain, how God is still, how God is working, <laughs> how he can redeem such situations. Yeah. yeah. And that's really kind of the... Uh, something you can do in literature in a novel that it's it's harder <laughs> to do in real life right because you like oh i can't mention that person and like <laughs> oh that sounds like <laughs> you know get in trouble but yeah. i mean i think actually it's a hopeful book and the real sense of hope it's not mm-hmm. it's not naive and it's not optimistic but where the characters end at the end is a willingness to carry on based on reality and um you know having come through the pain which was awful and they never would have chosen to go through it but having gone through it um it gives them a, a you know kind of a, a fresh start in its own way and i also think there's a lot of funny in it. I mean, it's leavened with some comedy. Um, I've had many pastors tell me that my um, scenes depicting the annual church conference is the most hilariously scathing satire they have ever come across of those kind of church events. So um, if if you just need a takedown of a ridiculous, ineffective bishop, this book is for you. Oh, I, I was coming to mind, too, about the organist in the story. <laughs> she, As an organist, that because, probably was painful Yeah, for because I'm an organist, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I hope I haven't been like that. Or the organist is like, I'm, I'm going to save this church. It's like, mm, that's not really your job. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, the church family that has deep historical roots, lots of money and never ever attends, but still mm. thinks they own the place. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys know that 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 part of church life, you'll find that here too. Yeah. Gosh, there were so many characters that were so like stood out and um likable or not likable upon <laughs> <laughs> the person. But yeah. um so tell me this idea, I mean you you've written many books 
and um, this idea of writing books, like there's there are issues you can bring up, like by writing this novel, you're able to talk about things that you couldn't really in any other way, not in this way mm. for certain. Tell me a little bit about that. Like why why do you write? What do you what is your uh, what do you want people to really get out of your books? Wow, deep questions. <laughs> well, I mean, the first answer is I write because I can't not. I think a lot of writers are like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I got my, well, I mean, I, I was always writing stories from the time I was small. But when I was old enough to actually try to do it in a more professional way, I actually got my start in nonfiction. I just was aware of the audience and the money was. And then I went on academically. So I'm a trained theologian. So I've written lots of, you know, academic articles and books and as well as taking that and putting it in more popular form um, and zillions of sermons as well. But um I think that um, as much as I really enjoy the discipline of theology, and I know theology gets a bad rap with lots of people, but it's just loving God with your mind. It's devoting the best of your intellectual capacities. Mm -hmm. um, it is It is not, uh, well, I mean, it, theology, like everything else, has good and bad in it, and better and worse. So, you know, I don't need to defend the bad stuff, but... Um, there are things it can't do. <laughs> and one thing I realized at some point is that almost all theology is written in the key of Romans, which is fabulous. Of course, I'm a Lutheran. Of course, I love Romans, but it is a very particular form or genre of communication. Mm -hmm. And theologians never write in the key of the Gospels, for example, or Esther or Nehemiah, which is a memoir, um, or and rarely in the form of poetry, which is a hugely important biblical genre, which is not to say you can only write in biblical genres, but I think the fact that there are so many genres in scripture uh, as well as in subsequent church tradition shows us that not all truth is accessed the same way or expressed the same yeah, way. As an artist, I definitely agree with of that. Of course, right. And music tells us things that the written word cannot and visual arts tells us things that dance cannot right all these th these things and so if you're actually really passionately committed to truth as i aspire to be then you have to look at all the avenues towards truth and not artificially cut them off so i think for me so something like this novel a tumbling down was a way to relate the experience of being a believer and a member, a part of a church community that I couldn't, I actually couldn't write in a nonfiction format. Mm. It would always be abstracted and it would always attempt at being universal. But in fact, one, one key thing you learn as a fiction writer is the more specific you are, the more universal the message becomes. Everybody writes out trying to write the story that is for everybody and is about everybody and no one is interested in that story. But, you know, people who have no connection to Lutheran pastors' families can read this and feel yeah. intimately what it is like to be these people and you know draw something very human and personal out of it even if they can't draw the faith lesson out of it um, but Definitely. i wanted to give more the texture of what it's like to believe and wrestle emotionally with all uh -huh. the things you wrestle with in life yeah pearly gates of, had that as well right the kind right. of physicality the humanity of heaven and here you are doing it with untumbling down and through this story. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen like schemas of like the steps of salvation, like first this and then that, and then you have to go through this and it might be, you know, only two steps or it might be, you know, I've seen texts, you know, like 18 to 20 and they have to unfold in the right order. And I just think, you know, if more, 
there are more fiction writers who were involved in theology. No one would come up with anything this stupid because every life is different. Everyone's experience is different. Of course, you find commonalities and similarities because we're human. But we mm-hmm. actually we actually get the commonalities by looking at the specific cases and not the other way around. Right. Yeah, definitely. Recently, I've been talking a lot about that, how the when you go and visit different countries around the world, you enter different cultures we are so much a product of our surroundings and environments and the stories that we are entrenched in. And we, you can't separate our humanity from that. No, no, and, right. and certainly our theology as well. Yeah, right. Like you don't go to a menu and say, I'm sorry, you don't go to a restaurant and say, I don't need the menu, just bring me good food. You right, know, right. You, or you don't say, play some good music. You know, like you, I mean, there's lots of things that's good music that doesn't specify it enough. And actually, you know, Bach's good music is not the Beatles' good music. Yeah. Um, before we start recording, you're telling me a little bit about your thoughts about wonder. You, oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Maybe this is this is where I am very much as a 21st century person and um, someone who's done academic training in theology and just tried to live in, in our very weird, hyper modern, hyper novel worlds. And I guess there there's kind of two two things on either side I'm trying to navigate between. One is the response of people of faith who are really deeply frightened and alarmed by the world and by discoveries that might call the faith into question. So whether that's like, you know, challenges to the origins of the biblical documents, you know, with historic criticism or archaeology um, or scientific findings. And so there's a need to just bracket out all of that, or or um, maybe more perniciously pine for a different century. If only I'd lived then, you know, if I wasn't stuck, you know, uh, I was born in the 20th century. Now I live in the 21st, you know, it's so awful now. And, you know, if, if this is God's creation, then now and everything we have unleashed looking out your windows at, mm-hmm. at downtown Tokyo and the high rises, I mean, this this is still part of God's project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't, mm-hmm. God doesn't love absolutely everything we've done, of course, but this is ultimately all within the realm of what God made good. So a kind of um, either bracketing out stuff or just wishing not to be here seems deeply unfaithful to me. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there are of course tons of voices, you know, we often call them like secular or rationalistic or materialistic that um, want everything or assume and infer everything is reductionistically explained, mechanistic, deterministic, everything happens just as a matter of course there is no freedom there is no god of course and i find that those kind of people live in the same level of denial as the believers who are frightened by reality because they they can't allow the emotions they feel towards their beloved or their children or their parents to be real and they can't allow their reactions to art or music to be real and they have to um, somehow tamp down any suspicion of wonder that cannot be analyzed and controlled by this kind of engineering approach to reality and so i think probably finding both of those wrong is and trying, I'm stumbling because I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it. I think what I'm trying to do in all my writing is to figure out a way to talk about what it's like to be really real, you know, these bodies in Mm -hmm. this time, but that God is really real, but not in an easily accessible way, obviously, or there'd be no question of doubt or pain, right? But at the same time, every time I try to run the, the thought experiments of, you know, this is all, you know, just 
religion is a projection of the brain that was evolutionarily helpful. You know, I, I can talk myself into that. And at the end of the day, it still doesn't change my mind about thinking God is real. And so I think this, for me, this concept of wonder, which I'm sure was very much formed by writers like George MacDonald's and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, all the, all those greats, um, there's something that's really true about wonder, but doing it in a way that's not fakely miraculous mm -hmm. or or just stripped down, you know, like the the bad titling of, of Shusako Endo's book, Silence. He didn't want it to be called Silence because Jesus does speak to him at the end, mm -hmm. but only at the end. To me, like that, that is closer, I think, in spirit to what I'm trying to get at is, is God is real, but he so often hides himself. Mm -hmm. And um, so just trying to, yeah. That, that's what I, I think if I try to analyze what I'm doing, both theologically and artistically, it's mapping out the real experience of wonder, not overblown, not um, right. but not reduced to, you know, the atoms moving in my brain. Yeah, I see that in your books as I think through them. I this sense of what as we live through our lives, you know, we we end up having kind of a narrow view of of perspective of the situation mm. that we're in but the idea of wonder as you're describing it gives us a kind of renewing sense of where we are rather than like some kind of other mystery thing it's like no actually just wonder in the situation that we're in being able to see it in a new way a new perspective um it's really exciting actually i mean it's and necessary you know mm. we just life can get well, life is hard. <laughs> life is hard and uh, we can get caught, so caught up and like, okay, and busy, you know, what's the next thing? What's the next thing that we kind of, it's like we're missing the journey and your writing really helps us see the journey uh, where we are, not just where we're going, but where we are right now. Thank, that, thanks for that reflection. That's great. And I just want to point out, it's so interesting. When I talk to other believers in the same space about this novel, they never bring up the non-realistic elements in it, I think, because it doesn't seem unrealistic to them. So mm -hmm. in the book, um, the pastor, dad, Donald, he regularly has conversations with his dead grandfather and what that what that even means is never explained. I never try to give an account. I just, I just knew, you know, Donald talks to his grandfather. His grandfather talks back. And Carmichael, uh, his wife, um, has alternate versions of herself, uh, different lives she could have had come up and confront and annoy her. Mm. And Kitty, the, the daughter, has her counsel, which she obviously got from her dad's church counsel, mm -hmm. but it's all populated with characters from her beloved books. And um, and I, I'll leave the, the ones for the little boys for the reader to discover. But this is just, it, it's, it's, uh, it's unfolded narratively as completely realistic, even though clearly it doesn't, what? Well, clearly i don't know does it not happen that way i've had a lot of people say this seems actually what life is like to me this is what yeah. it actually feels like yeah no it's very effective yeah we're almost out of time but before we do is there any other would you like to talk introduce any of your other books to our listeners can i tell about an upcoming one sure okay so right now i am writing a book about the transfiguration of jesus because 
uh, as a preacher, it comes up in my cycle of readings every year. And after three or four years, I was like, I don't have anything left to say about this, but surely there's more to it than I've thought up. So I started reading and became completely obsessed and fascinated with the transfiguration of Jesus. And probably because it is this um, wondrous moment in mm. the life of Jesus in, you know, I mean, obviously Jesus does cool things like miracles, but other than the resurrection like this is the big one in the middle of jesus earthly life and so i just started going into it and i was like i bet there are more preachers who need help preaching on this every year i found out catholics and anglicans have to preach on it twice a year that's a whole nother story <laughs> um, but also for anyone any believer who's come across this and like i have no idea what to do with this story and um anyway so i'm working on it right now i'm going to have a kickstarter for it in january 2024 so um if anyone wants to be involved in this but um awesome. i think it will give a it gives it's actually called seven ways of looking at the transfiguration because even for this very short story there is so much happening and it's drawing in so many aspects of scripture and spiritual life and devotion um but to me it, it kind of it's given me a new way to look at and think about Christ and what he's doing. So I hope some of that excitement will be communicated. Yeah, I can't wait. I'll definitely include a link in the show notes Super. so people can Thanks. get involved with the Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, and how can people listen to you? I know you have a podcast. There are other things they can follow. Sure. Actually, I have two podcasts. So if you want the more nonfiction traditional theology stream, it's called Queen of the Sciences, Conversations Between a Theologian and Her Dad. And guess what? My co-host is my dad, Paul Henlicky, <laughs> a theologian as well probably is better claim to it than I do uh, and we just are about to wrap up our fifth year together and next year we'll be starting our sixth and um, but also this year I realized that um, I was ready to kind of be more more out there and official with my passion for combining good fiction and good theology at the same time. So I've just mm -hmm. started a second podcast with the very boring but accurate title, Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories. And in fact, the first season is all the 30 stories of Pearly Gates, uh, each with a little introduction from me. So you can find either of those on your podcast app or wherever you are listening to this one. Awesome. Okay, I'll include links for that as well. Cool. Yeah. Um, Anything else you want to share before we sign off? I think we've more than adequately supplied <laughs> listeners with things to follow up Well, on. But thank yeah. you, Roger, for this conversation. Yeah, I, and we're looking forward to tonight and yeah, sharing with too. all that we have. We're planning to have quite a few people come and a dinner. It's going to be a really good night. So Great. thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for the invitation to be here. That was <laughs> perfect wow. timing. So that really was perfect timing, right? I mean, I had to leave that last part in for all of you just because I thought it was so funny. I mean, I was watching the clock as we're talking and thinking, oh, no, people are going to start ringing that doorbell. And sure enough, that's what happened. So now you know what a Japanese doorbell sounds like. Oh, the event was so cool. I mean, a lot of people came and we had another author speak as well, Ellen McGinty, about her book, The Water Child where she tells the story of a teenage girl who's trying to find healing in her family when the 2011 earthquake and tsunami strike. Now, I read this book when it first came out in 2021, two years ago, and was really struck by how the power, not just the power of the storytelling, but the accuracy of the events, the way she's able to describe the scene of the disaster. Because Ellen herself, the author, was involved in the relief movement in 2011 after the earthquake and so was able to write it from personal experience and the experiences of people she worked with. 
So anyway, I highly recommend her book as well, and we'll include a link in the show notes to this podcast. We also had two people share who attended a writer's conference in Nagoya, Japan, a city about two hours south of us here in Tokyo. And they shared some of the things that they had learned, especially it was interesting, the, some of the trends that are going on right now about what audiences are looking for and especially what publishers are looking for. And there were a lot of writers in attendance, so we had just a really great discussion time together. We do Art Life Faith events like this once a month, and I actually started this podcast during COVID in order to be able to share some of this content with all of you and the the conversations we're having and the people we're talking with. Now, most of those events are in Japanese, but it's especially great when the speakers speak English as well so that you all can participate in them. So as we sign off, Sarah Hinlicky-Wilson has her Kickstarter campaign. She mentioned it's happening right now through January 31st, and I encourage you all to check it out and back her project. And I'm going to include the links to that in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As we say in Japan, ja, mata ne. See you next time.